Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Thanks, Todd. Keep your Bible open to Philippians chapter 4. That's where we're going to be at this morning. Philippians chapter 4, verses uh, 1 through 3. Family matters. Family matters. I'm intending to say that both ways this morning. Family matters, meaning it does in fact matter. It's significant and it's important, as well as a part of that, understanding that family matters, and there's also family matters that need to be talked about and thought through, and that's what we see occurring here in these three verses in Philippians uh, chapter uh, 4. Family matters. I'm going to read again for you, verse 1. Therefore, brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Family matters. First thing I want us to think about just for a few minutes here is this. Family matters, and that's where and how we find strength. That's, in fact, a command in here. Stand firm. Family matters because that's how we find strength, primarily and especially through and in the Lord. Now, I don't know if you've seen this documentary on uh, the Netflix. It's called the, called the Dawn Wall. The Dawn Wall. It's very different than Red Dawn. Uh, So if you do a search for Dawn, you're going to get two results. You're looking for Dawn Wall, and it's about a climber, a guy named Tommy Caldwell. And Tommy Caldwell was one of the best climbers in the world, uh, and uh, he was going to climb what's called the Dawn Wall on uh, El Capitan in uh, Yosemite. Now, why is the Dawn Wall interesting? Because nobody climbs that. It's like climbing a mirror. Uh, there's nothing to grab onto. And, but he, for years and years and years, made his plans, and he would rappel down the thing, and he thought he had found a route in which he could climb the Don Wall, but he knew he needed a partner. So he recruited uh, another climber named Kevin, and Kevin and he began a long journey climbing up the Don Wall. Now, I don't know if you know anything about climbing. I don't, other than you want to go up at a slow rate of speed and not down at a high rate of speed. That's <laughs> the extent of my knowledge. And... Uh, uh, so what they would do is it was called a free climb, but they were climbing with a safety rope. So they weren't using the ropes to aid their climb, but any upward movement had to be done by uh, only holding on to the wall itself. And, uh, and they would do it by pitches. So they would establish these lengths that they would go a bit, and then they would sleep overnight. And I think they were up on the wall a couple of weeks, if I remember right. And uh, so what they would do is they would successfully make each uh, uh, pitch, and then the next, and then the next, and, and they got through it. Now, they got to the one part that was really, really hard. All of it was really hard, but I guess there was one part that was more impossible than the other impossible parts of it. And uh, Tommy Caldwell was able to make it through, and he was actually able to make it through a few more pitches, and Tommy was now up to the easy part, kind of the just getting to the top part. But Kevin, Kevin had not been able to get through the most difficult part. And everybody said, well, Tommy, you may as well just finish. You'll be the first guy in history to climb the Don Wall, and you may as well finish. And what did Tommy do? He went back down to Kevin. And this was the quote he gave the the news. 
he said this, I couldn't imagine finishing this climb without Kevin. That was, his, he said, I just couldn't imagine it. And he waited and waited, and he delayed it. He delayed finishing that climb. I think it was at least six more days it took Kevin to get through the most difficult part of that climb because Tommy's issue was, I'm, I know I can finish this climb, but there is no point in doing it if Kevin's not with me. And this is precisely what Paul is calling us into as believers here in Philippians chapter 4. He says, therefore, my, my brothers, stand firm. But he is saying, stand firm together. In fact, to define strength in the believer's life is to be defined by how much we are together. And family matters because family matters is where we as believers find strength in the Lord. We find strength in the Lord only, and we only find strength in the Lord together. These two concepts are important from a biblical standpoint. Look at the command again. He says this is a command. Stand firm. Now, I'm reading from the ESV. Stand firm thus in the Lord, saying, I want you to stand firm in a particular way in the Lord. And he would say, well, what is the particular way he wants us to stand firm? Well, what we would need to do is go back and read the first three chapters of Philippians again. That wouldn't take you very long. In fact, if you do it while I'm up here yammering on, that's fine with me. But let's just boil it down into this. He wants us to stand firm by walking and imitating the Apostle Paul, who is imitating Christ, and Christ left heaven, Philippians chapter 2, humiliated himself by becoming a servant of all and dying on the cross. So Paul says, I want you to copy me who am following after Christ, who left heaven to humble himself to serve others who don't deserve it by dying on the cross for you. Therefore, with this kind of walk in mind, stand firm together. The way we stand firm together is to, in a Christ-like manner, serve one another and the community around us. Stand firm uh, together by imitating the Lord through humble service. Stand firm together with our minds set, not on earthly things, but heavenly things. Stand firm together by having affection for one another. Look what he says, verse 1 again. Therefore, my brothers, and we can assume he's talking to all the people of the church, both men and women. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for. This is something many of us don't like to talk about. He had the feels for the church. When he thought of Philippians and the church in Philippi, he got warm fuzzies and a bit of a little butterfly in his stomach. He's like, man, those people are so awesome. Did he get along with everybody in Philippi? We don't know. But do you know anything about the Apostle Paul? Do you think he got along with everybody in Philippi? No. Absolutely no chance he got along with everybody in Philippi. But that is not the way in which he defined his relationships. His relationships were defined by the Lord, and he had affection for the people in Philippi. He loved them, and he longed for them. In fact, look what he says. They are his joy and his crown. That is, the church in Philippi brought him joy, and in fact, he took great delight in recognizing that the significant things of his life are wrapped up in the people of Philippi, his crown, the things in which he hopes his mom puts on the refrigerator are his work in Philippi. That's what he means by his crown. The things he thinks, has my life mattered? And he thinks of the Philippi. Okay, 
the Lord has used me for something because I can think of the people in the city of Philippi. And so he calls us in obedience to stand firm like he does, in loving, affectionate embrace of the community of believers and doing so in humble service. And he says when we do that, the body of believers that we're connected with becomes our joy and our crown. What does he mean by crown? Uh, just one quick place to look. First Peter chapter 5, excuse me, verses 2, 3, and 4. It'll be up on the displays so you can follow along up there. He's talking primarily to elders in the church, but the concept here we know biblically can be applied to all of us. He says this, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Excuse me, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. Verse 4, in the chief shepherd, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Receive the unfading crown of glory. So we have two concepts we need to understand that Paul is referring to here in his relationship with the body of believers in Philippi. On the one hand, they're his joy and crown, meaning they are his delight, as well as that which he clings to. He says, something God has used me because I can look at the people of Philippi. On the other hand, he is also saying, I have labored for the Lord and I anticipate the Lord's great reward. So he sees both of these things happening in his uh, connection with the body of believers in Philippi. He says, when I serve the Lord by being affectionate to and toward the body of believers and serving the people in the body of believers, I anticipate the Lord will grant me great joy, and I also anticipate one day the Lord will grant His great reward. And both of these things are good ways to approach our relationship with God and the church as we look for ways to uh, humbly serve one another. So family matters because we find strength in the Lord, and the way in which we find strength is by taking joy in the body of believers and humbly serving the body of believers, knowing that one day God will seek uh, to reward as we serve uh, Him. Family matters, finding strength. So this is a command, stand firm thus in the Lord. But it's a command not from a drill instructor, uh, instructor, it's not Paul yelling at us, stand firm in the Lord or I'll smack you upside the head. He's saying, no, stand firm in the Lord with the body of believers because there is no other way to stand firm. Because in loving grace, he's extending to us the way in which we will know our life will on balance be standing for the Lord. It is done together with the, fa the family of the Lord. It is to get done together with the other believers couple of things here, and then we'll uh, move on to verse 2. Strength in the Lord here is not some sense of stoic individualism. What is stoic individualism? What is stoic individualism? Stiff upper lip. Just hang in there. You know you're doing it right if you're absolutely miserable. Say, so just, just be strong and keep your problems to yourself and just hunker down and we've all been to these kinds of churches you show up for church on Sunday and you feel like, did I come on the wrong day I think a funeral is happening and you know you're not sure what you're supposed to do are we are we happy in the Lord or are we I'm not sure what we are 
We've all felt that way at times in our walk with the Lord. Say, okay, the only way I'm going to hang with the Lord today is to go minute by minute and see what happens. And there are times that that is true. But if on balance the, the description of our Christian life is just a stiff upper lip, keep your mouth shut, hands folded, stoic individualism, no connection with others, we've missed the joy of the Lord. We've missed the joy of the Lord. Strength in the Lord requires brotherly affection. Strength in the Lord requires brotherly affection. Let me just real quickly think of some other things that you might think strength of the Lord requires. These things might be necessary as well, but don't work without brotherly affection. Some of us think strength in the Lord requires doctrinal fidelity, meaning what? I know all the right answers, and anybody who disagrees with me is wrong. Strength in the Lord means I know all the right answers in the Bible. Strength in the Lord means I never do any of the bad stuff. How do you define what the bad stuff is? I don't know. It's completely up to you, I think. It's whatever you define as bad stuff. Some of you are saying watching the Netflix is the bad stuff. You can't believe I mentioned it. You're offended. I know what the movie Red Dawn is. It's worse. I know what the Wolverines are. Great movie. I can't recommend it, though. It's inappropriate. Um, I'm in a lot of trouble now. Um, I don't know. What do, you, what do you think of the strength of the Lord is? I read my Bible every day. Yes, you should read your Bible every day. But what we try to do is, I want to make sure I'm strong in the Lord in everything except brotherly affection. Why, is, why do we do that? Nothing is worse, oh my Lance, nothing is worse than having to depend on other people. Isn't it terrible when you have to depend on other people? Has anybody here been let down before? Just the one guy. And you say, wait, how can the strength of the Lord come from from brotherly affection and depending on other people? Have you met these other people? The reason I'm strong in the Lord is I have learned in my faith to never depend on anyone. And then we read Philippians chapter 1 and we discover we've been doing it wrong. The strength of the Lord is in our ability to trust Jesus enough. We will even depend on those yahoos in church. And we will extend affection to them and open ourselves up to them. In fact, I might suggest we need to redefine what it means to be a part of the body of believers in our mind. Let me give you two examples. Many of us think church is where Christians come together. We think church is where Christians come together. That's, that's actually not it. Christians are the church all over the place. See, what we've done is we've defined church based on who we are. The Bible never does that. The Bible defines us by who we are in Christ and His bride, the body of Christ. The starting point is we as individuals are a part of the body of Christ. When you get baptized, you are baptized and identified into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and identified as a part of the people of Christ, the church. This church didn't exist because you showed up today. The church existed whether you showed up or not. Christians are the body of Christ spread all over the place. And the strength in the Lord that we need to have that many of us are missing is an element or a significant portion of our walk with the Lord connected with other people. 
and it's hard, and it's inconvenient, and it's difficult to deal with people, and I understand all of that, but the Bible doesn't have option B. We find strength in the Lord, brothers and sisters, in the body of Christ, connected with the body of Christ, humbly serving the other people in the body of Christ. Family matters. Finding strength, meaning this. I would suggest this. You cannot have strength in the Lord without having a deep affection and connection with the other individuals in the body of Christ. A, a sure recipe to having your Christian life flame out at some point is to maintain somewhat of a disconnect with the body of Christ and people in the body of Christ. Strength in the Lord excludes individualism. It requires affection for the people of the Lord. All right, let's keep reading. Let's read verse chapter, verse chapter 2. Oh, my lambs. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. So this is another thing we have to understand. Being together in the church is not merely a philosophical value. Being together in the Lord is a habit that is a discipline that requires some intentionality. Family matters. Number two, experiencing community. Yudia, Syntyche, agree in the Lord. There was a fantastic movie made a few years ago. It was an animated movie, actually a stop-action claymation movie. It was called Chicken Run. I love this film. It was such a good movie, they based another movie on the plot of that movie. It was called The Great Escape. Um, <laughs> and uh, Steve McQueen patterned his character after the rooster in Chicken Run. He did such a great job in that movie, they named uh, Lightning McQueen after him in the Cars movie. You didn't know these were all connected. Okay. You're like, I did learn something in church. I had no idea. Um, so here's the thing. Uh, maybe you've never seen the film Chicken Run. Actually, I can recommend that movie. That's a great movie. So if you don't know the plot, it's fantastic. It's a group of hens, and they are in an egg farm. Okay, Miss Tweedy's egg farm. And the Tweedy's determined that eggs aren't very profitable. They're going to be switching to chicken pot pies. Uh, it's in England. Um, Obviously, this is a down, has some downside for the hens uh, in the farm uh, because what the job they could do before, they could also lay eggs while not dying. Uh, uh, chicken pot pies is less likely to survive. So one hen in particular is in charge of seeing if they can get all the hens to escape to go to the mythical land where all the hens are safe. In the meantime, Rooster, Rocky Road, somehow gets launched out of a cannon, uh, lands in there, and he's having a discussion with the leader, and she says, we're going to escape. And he says, escape? What a piece of cake. This place is terribly easy to escape. We can walk right out here. And she goes, no, no, no. Any one hen can escape. I want us all to escape at once. And he said, you're crazy. That's impossible. And this is the thing he was missing. He could have accomplished a lot on his own. The lead hen said, no, no. That does me no good. If we don't all get out, nobody's getting out. And family matters is when we experience community in the same way, where we have an agenda, but the agenda is not our individual agenda. That's Rocky Road. He had the same agenda. Let's get out. But it was a very different agenda from the lead hand. She said, no, I want to get out, but I want us all to get out. This is the nature of the disagreement between Yudia and Syntyche. They both agreed the gospel mattered. They both agreed the gospel should go forth into the community of Philippi. But there was disagreement on how and when and who. And Paul is saying here to them, 
You must agree. The point is not whether or not you both agree on what the gospel is and that it is important. The question is, do you understand the gospel calls you to unity together in the body of Christ? So these two women, we don't know anything about them other than they were likely uh, non-Jewish. Their names are Greek Hellenistic names. We also know from the next verse, these aren't women who were causing problems. They were co-laborers with Paul in the gospel of Christ. They were contenders for the Lord with him in the church of Philippi. They were co-sufferers with Paul. And he's saying, you're suffering with me, you're serving with me, but this is the gospel we're talking about. You need to agree together on the gospel. You have differing priorities on how the gospel is applied, and I need you to agree on how the gospel is applied. It would be fruitful for us to see how the church in Philippi started, so we're going to look at Acts 16 here for just a minute. Uh, the, some of the verses will be up on the screen. I'm going to read the few ver- few ver- first few verses of the reading, and then I'll tell a little bit of the story. This is Acts 16, beginning in verse 11. Here's what it says. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Let me point something out real quickly. You'll notice the pronouns there are we. That means the writer of the book of Acts, in this particular case, is with Paul. The writer of the book of Acts is a guy named Luke. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. And so Luke is with them. Verse 13, On the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there would be a place of prayer, and we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. After she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And thus begins the church in Philippi. They just went out to the river where there was likely a community prayer area. They met some women, shared the gospel. People got saved and the church started. They then go into the city, and as they're working their way through the city, uh, a girl who was possessed by a demon was screaming and yelling at them. And after a few days, Paul got tired of this. I think that's hilarious. I would have been tired of it after like 30 seconds. A couple days later, okay, I've got to do something about this. So Paul cast the demon out of the girl. Now, the girl had some people who owned her, were trafficking her, and she was a fortune teller of sorts, and they figured out now that a demon had been cast out and she could no longer tell the future, their means of profit was gone, and so these guys got the city all riled up. Paul and his companions were imprisoned. They were beaten and imprisoned. That night, God caused a ruckus to happen and the gates of the jail came open and Paul didn't escape though. He, he sat still. The jailer came out and realized that everybody might have escaped and was going to kill himself and Paul said to him, hey, hey, don't kill yourself. We're all here. Nobody left. And what did the jailer say to him? What do I have to do to get saved? So he gets saved on the spot. Him and his whole household. The next day, the city magistrates come in. They say, hey, you guys can go. And what did Paul say? Hey, ain't happening, bro. That's in the Greek. (laughs) 
He said this, you, you took prisoner, Roman citizens, you beat us publicly, and you expect us to just quietly just sneak out of the city? No, no, no. You're going to take us out publicly and tell the city there was nothing wrong with us. And that's what they did. Then they asked them to leave the city after that. This is how the church in Philippi started. Suffering, persecution, difficulty. That's how it started. That's how it continued. These women are not a couple of gossips who are sitting in the back not doing anything. Sorry, folks, not, nothing gets you guys in the back. I, yeah, my bad. Yeah. These are women engaged in the ministry of the gospel, and in fact, engaged in the ministry of the gospel in a context of difficulty, suffering, and persecution. And Paul is saying this. We need to pay attention. Even in the midst of your faithful ministry, if you aren't agreeing together, you're missing the point of the gospel you're working toward and with. Isn't that incredible? We seem to think, as long as I do my little thing, I'm good. And Paul is saying, no. The effectiveness of the work of the gospel in our heart, the effectiveness of the work of the gospel in this body of believers, and the effectiveness of the work of the gospel in our community is fundamentally connected to our ability in unity to agree with one another in love and affection. It's not about are we as individuals doing the right thing. The question is, do we as a body of believers have enough love and affection for one another in the gospel to give up our personal agenda and serve others in the ministry of the gospel? I might suggest this as well. The Bible teaches us that the relational context, the relational soup pot of the gospel in the body of Christ is as important as the actual ministry that's done. Two people arguing, sharing the gospel are not as effective as two people who are in unity together doing it poorly. The important part of the gospel ministry in the body of believers is the unity of the believers. Jesus said it this way in John 17. Lord, would you make them one as you and I are one, so that the world will know that I am the Messiah. Jesus said in John 17, basically, the world will know he raised from the dead to the degree that you and I are unified in the gospel. Not that just you and I agree on, on the gospel, we are unified in the gospel. God, Paul was deeply concerned for these two women in the body of believers that their disagreement over things in the gospel, over the, the work of the local church, was going to actually undermine the work of the local church. Romans 12.10 says this. Let me turn to it. If I try to quote it, I'll say it wrong. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Love one another with brotherly affection. The way that's applied, we outdo one another with showing honor. What do you would tell Yodia and Syntyche? You need to defer to each other as a means of showing one another honor. You need to defer in Christ-like love and sacrifice and humility to the other as a means for showing honor. Another way we could say this is unity in the body of Christ is one of the most fundamental and basic ministries of the body of Christ. Unity in the body of Christ is a fundamental and basic ministry of the body of Christ, marked by love and affection for one another. Just a couple of things, and then we'll get to the last section. We, this doesn't mean we 
uh, have a, a policy in a body of Christ where, you know, keep your mouth shut, do what you're told. That's not what it's saying. Okay? We should have strong opinions. There's a few of us in here that have some strong opinions. I like it. We should have strong opinions. You read the Bible, it's full of strong opinions. It's full of people explaining their strong opinions strongly. We should have robust dialogue. Every now and then we should get riled up. In fact, I might suggest we don't get riled up enough. Okay? We should talk. We should fight it out. We should duke it out every now and then. Think about it this way. Um, Two brothers. Maybe things aren't the same way they used to be. you got two brothers, maybe similar in age. And uh, they go back out. And dad looks out the window. And they're just tearing each other to shreds in the backyard. Punching each other. Biting, kicking, throwing rocks. Anybody ever done any of this? What does dad do? Ooh, that's a, oh, nice. Okay. Is he worried those guys aren't brothers? No, in fact, in some ways, they're fundamentally doing what brothers do. Okay? Now, he would be very upset at the end of that fight, they weren't brothers anymore. Okay? Now, what we're saying, we're not going to be defined by fights and yelling, kicking, and screaming. Don't get me, that's not what I'm saying. But at some point, somebody says, your way, not mine. At some point, after opinions are shared and arguments are had and love is extended, somebody says, you know what? You're wrong. I'm right. Let's do it your way. You say, why in the world would I ever do that? Because Jesus did first. That's what Paul is saying. But the way they want to do it is a waste of money. The way they want to do it is not the way I'm used to doing it. The way they want to do it annoys me. The way they want to do it, who knows, it doesn't even matter. The point is, at some point, somebody, for the name of brotherly affection and unity in the body of Christ, says, you know what? Not my way, your way. And not begrudgingly, fine, have it your way. That's not what we're talking about. It's not my way, but your way. Wait, wait, wait. You're going to give me the privilege of acting like Jesus and letting you have it your way? Thank you. That's Romans 12. Outdo one another in showing honor. We've had the discussion. We haven't come to terms. Who is it then who should be the first one to say, it's not my way, it's your way? Who who should do it? Is that hard to figure out? The mature one. The one who's most like Jesus. Jesus. See, actually, in the body of Christ, the fight that should be break out is two people fighting over who would let the other person have it their way. That should be the fight. No, it's your way. Oh, no, no, you're not taking my chance or honor. It's your way. But that's, that doesn't normally happen. That's what these two ladies are being called to do. You love Jesus. You love the gospel. Agree with each other. How do we agree? Somebody has to decide to act like Jesus and let the other person have their way and enjoy it. Well, how in the world am I supposed to do that, you might say? You're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. You're going to need the power of God to change your stubborn and arrogant heart to say, not my way, Lord, your way. Let me, God, let go of the need to be in charge of this and let them have it the way they want to do it. More ministry is done in humble service by letting go than the actual ministry itself, I might suggest. And that's the only way unity is achieved in the body of Christ. I'm going to say this wrong because I'm just thinking of this now, which is really dangerous. 
Usually in conflict resolution, what you're looking for is what? Win-win, okay? This is going to come out wrong, which usually is really good. Here we go. What we want in the body of Christ is win-lose. And we want the body of Christ to be fighting over who gets to lose. That's unity in the body of Christ. Well, that doesn't sound fun. Okay, well, look at the cross and decide if that sounds fun. You say, well, what's the benefit to me not getting what I want? What's the benefit to somebody else having their way? The benefit is you get to be like Jesus. And that's how unity in the body of Christ is found. We must arrive at unity in the body of Christ. And the way we achieve unity in the body of Christ is not everybody gets a bit of their way. The way unity is achieved in the body of Christ is we receive the distinct honor of conforming the pattern of our life to a cross where we die to what we want and let other people have what they want. Our joy is derived in the humble service of Christ, not in being the ones who get it our way. Family matters. That's where we experience community. Community of a gospel agenda, not a gospel agenda driven by our own individualism. All right, last verse, verse 3. Family matters, looking out. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Family matters, looking out. Family matters because in the body of Christ is one of the few places in our lives where we get to finally escape the claustrophobic world of me. Think about it. When you go on a hike, say you go on a hike, you're going to go up to one of the lakes around the valley, you're going to go um, uh, maybe hike the Pacific Crest Trail for a stretch, or maybe you're going to hike around the mall. You know, the weather's nice. Um, If you look at your feet the whole time, you're going to miss the whole point of the hike, aren't you? If you look at your feet the whole time, the whole point of being on a hike around Howard Prairie, Lake of the Woods, or up Prairie Lake, the whole point is that you get your eyes up and get to see something other than you. If you want to see you, you can go to the bathroom and look in the mirror. Okay? If you look at your feet, and, and the reason family matters is this is a place where we get to come and we get to realize, oh, wait, wait, the world is so much bigger than just me. Think about it this way. Say in your whole life, somebody came to you and said, listen, here's what I want you to do for the rest of your life. You're going to only talk to one other person the rest of your life. You get, so pick them. Who's it going to be? Right? And what would you say? I don't want to do that. Now, some of you, maybe some of us are pretty introverted. I am myself. You say, well, that sounds actually pretty good. Just one? All right. You got a deal. I have to deal with all those other people. Don't pick an extrovert if you're an introvert doing that. You're going to, anyway. Most of us say, no, no, I want to talk to more than just one person. But many of us pattern our whole life about the only person I want to talk to and be with is me. Everything about my life is directed by how it connects with me. And family matters in the body of Christ we're going to see here because it gets me to look out and say, you know what, this world is so much bigger than just me. The point he is going to make here, we need to get outside of the world world of just me, and that's one of the key functions of the church. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women. Who was the companion he is talking to? We have no idea. I'm going to take a guess. I think it's Luke. He was with him in Philippi. He was likely remaining in Philippi. 
flip a coin. It could be a couple of other different people. I like Luke. I'm going to go with Luke. So he tells him, help these women to see outside the scope of their small world of just themselves. Help these women to see outside of themselves. He's asking Luke to function as the body of Christ to help these women to see out something bigger than their own small interests. He's challenging him to get his eyes up. Now let's look at something interesting. Acts chapter 15. Uh, the verses won't be up on the screen. If you want to look at the story, it's in verse 36. I wonder if Luke wrote back to Paul and just said, Hey Paul, just a quick reminder about something you and I encountered. Acts 15, 36, just before Paul gets to Philippi, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, you know, let's go back and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. That sounds like a good plan. Let's go back to all the churches we started, see how it's going. And Barnabas says, let's take John Mark. Paul thought it best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them in the work. So what happened at a certain point in their journey, John Mark got a little tired of the road life. He started to bail, and he bailed on him. And Barnabas said to Paul, now that we're going to go revisit the churches, let's take John Mark with us. And Paul says, oh, the, the guy who left in the middle of the job. Yeah, I don't think so. So certainly Paul, who is challenging Yodia and Syntyche to unity, would probably... Uh, imitate the pattern of the cross and let Barnabas have his way and extend grace. Wouldn't that be the case? Do you know the story? There arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and they departed. And having been commended by the brothers in the grace of the Lord, they went out through Syria and Cilicia. Can you believe this? Paul has the gall to write to the church in Philippi about unity in the church when he can't get along with Barnabas. And then he tells Luke, who was probably a part of this whole ordeal, hey, would you help these ladies uh, get along? And if I were Luke, I would write a letter back. Dear Paul, you're an idiot. So this is, this is but, and you say, well, this can't work. And you say, no, this is what the body of Christ is like. I think this is fantastic. Now, we ought to pay attention. Paul and Barnabas, at a certain point in the future, did restore their relationship. We should understand that. But we should understand this. We all need the body of Christ. You don't go to a certain point in maturity in your life where all of a sudden you don't need the body of Christ to challenge the notion that you have in your mind that the world is about you and your needs, your opinions, and your wants. Family matters because every single one of us, as long as we're not home yet, We'll need the body of Christ to draw our eyes off of our own hearts and instead draw our eyes up to the cross. And Paul understands this, and he calls on his companion in Philippi, help these women to agree. He's not telling this companion to exhort them or to correct them or to kick them out of the church. He's telling them they need some help. They need somebody to sit down with them and walk through this together and say, how does the gospel apply to this situation of disagreement? How do we learn to apply the gospel by dying to our own desires and allowing the other one to have their way? The help that he is supposed to offer is to think through their relationship, think through their relationship with the Lord, excuse me, and apply the gospel to the, the conflict that they are experiencing. 
They're co-laborers. They love the Lord. They love the gospel. Their names are written in the book of life together. They anticipate spending eternity together. And Paul is saying, come together in the gospel, and each of you walk away from your own agenda. Walk away from what you say must be, and instead say, I will walk after Christ by conforming my life to the cross. I could put it this way. Believers who look out from themselves look out for one another. When we look out from ourselves, instead of looking out for ourselves, we look out from ourselves. It's there we have the ability to look out for one another, and it's in those kinds of relationships that we have the best opportunity to see the gospel at work. Most of us understand and know what the gospel is. Jesus died for us to forgive us so we could receive forgiveness and new life because of the power of the resurrection. Most of us assume the primary place we want to apply the gospel is to our own hearts. We do need to apply the truth of the gospel to our own hearts. We do. But the primary place we should be applying the truth of the gospel is to others. You say, well, who's going to apply the gospel to my heart? I need somebody to help me. You've got to wait. But see, we've gotten used to not serving others, and we've gotten used to others not serving us, and so we figure, well, I've got to apply the gospel. Nobody is going to help me. I'm going to help myself. And all of a sudden, the entirety of our Christian life is my sin, my need for joy, my need for significance. How do I find the grace of Christ in my life when really the Bible has called us in the body of believers to make the gospel not about my own heart, but about others? And, and for God to move in others to challenge the gospel into my own life. It is wonderful when the gospel shows up in our own heart and we experience that joy and that peace and that grace. But it is fundamentally greater to see the gospel find purchase in somebody else. However great it is for you, moment by moment in your Christian life, to experience the gospel to greater degrees, it is fundamentally greater to see that in someone else's life. And if you don't believe me, it's because you haven't seen it. Somebody is saying, well, I need to grow in the Lord a little bit more before I engage in ministry with others. Let me just walk you through that. No. Next. Thankfully, your ministry to others does not depend on you. It depends on the power of the Holy Spirit through you. How about you just go out and start serving others and see how God shows up in your life? In fact, I would say this. Many of us say, I need to grow in the Lord so that I might serve others. I might suggest the pattern in the Bible is we serve others so that we can grow in the Lord. Believers who look out from themselves will look out for others and will encounter the gospel in ways we never have before. Family matters, finding strength. A couple of quick questions, and then we're going to wrap it up, okay? And it has, we're done a little, going to get done a little early. It has nothing to do with the NFL schedule. <laughs> I've got a meeting after church, and the Seahawks aren't playing. Who cares? Family matters, finding strength. Here's a question I know I need to ask, and I know there's at least two of us in here who need to ask this. Are you strong in the Lord, or are you just stubborn? There is a, there's a difference between the two. Being stubborn is I was raised in the church, 
I'm going to die in the church. Church is right, always been right. Dag Nabbit, they're going to drag me out of here dead and screaming. Probably both. That's just stubborn. And you can be stubborn about anything. You can be stubborn about the best car that's ever made, the best football team. You can be stubborn about politics. You can be stubborn about relationships. You can be stubborn about what color things ought to be. That is not strong in the Lord. The fact that you are stubborn, and we're all stubborn a bit. Some of us got a bit of a stubborn streak in us. It's, you know, those of us who are stubborn, we come by it uh, honestly. It's hard not to be stubborn when you're as right as we are, you know? <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Strength of the Lord is not defined by stubbornness. Strength in the Lord, pay attention, clearly is defined by loving, affectionate relationships in the body of believers. Stubbornness will not get us home. The love of Christ experienced in relational community, mutually depending on one another to walk with the Lord, is what is going to get us home. The strength of the Lord is defined by the relational community of believers. It is not defined by individual stubbornness. And we need to redefine that. We may think we are strong, but if our relational connection with others in the body of believers is small or insignificant, we are not as strong as we think we are. Family matters, experiencing community. Have you ever been frustrated in your family? I mean, you don't have to answer out loud if you're sitting with your family. They already know. Sure, you've been frustrated with your family, right? The problem is they exist in the home you live in, right? Drives you nuts. Why does this bother us in the church? You know, it's a relational community. You spend long enough with a relational community, you'll discover the other people are, in fact, people. And they act like people. And there is nothing more irritating about people than their people-iness. Right? If you haven't been frustrated with the body of believers, either your relational connection is not close enough or you haven't been here long enough. And I still cannot figure out people that they get a little peeved off about something in a relational community. They hit the eject button. Okay? This makes no sense to me. If you are frustrated in the body of Christ, congratulations, you're getting it. Because that's what happens in relational community. That means you're getting closer to the sweet spot. You can't serve in relationship in the body of Christ, cruciform or cross-shaped, unless you're serving people that think different than you. That's the whole idea of being in a body of Christ is we're shoved into relationships that challenge the way we see things and we're forced to because the Bible tells us to walk by the power of spirit and let that other person have their way. This is so critically important to growing in Christ and most people in the United States miss it because as soon as they get to the part where it's hard, they go to church B. I've, I've said this before. This is like going to the fitness center and saying you want to get in shape and then once you discover weights are heavy, you go to another fitness center where they don't require heavy lifting. It makes no sense. The whole point of being a part of the body of Christ is to discover unity in the midst of relational challenge. 
not because there's no relational challenge. If you haven't been frustrated, you don't know family, and church is family. Now, we don't celebrate conflict. That's not what we're talking about. We're saying when it happens, we go, okay, great, we get to apply the gospel. And then you pray and pray and pray, the other person gets it before you have to voluntarily let them have it their way, right? But this is the joy of walking in relational community in the church. To encounter conflict and frustration and say, okay, Lord, there's a real pain. Give me your grace. Let me be the first one to go to the cross on this issue. Thank you for the joy of acting your way. Let me let go of my bitterness, my resentment. Give me the grace to forgive. The only way to get into those places in our relationship with the Lord is in relational community where people drive us bonkers. That is a a privilege God has given us. Family matters, experiencing community. Finally, the goal of community is to look out for myself to look out for myself and look for opportunities to conform myself to the image of Christ, to have a cross-shaped life in the life of the body of believers. Where do I give up what I want so that I might serve others in the body of believers? Family matters because it gives us a chance to look out for my own desires, my own agenda, my own preferences, and instead serve others. Finding strength, experiencing community, looking out.